little story to start off. When I first got my driver's license, it took me a fair amount of time to get adjusted to the fact that I was actually the one who was driving the car alone. And so there were, se- there were several occasions where my mom would send me on some errand to go get milk or something. And so I would grab the keys off the key ring and I would go outside and I would climb in the car, close the door, and I would sit there for a little bit and I would go, something's not right. And after a couple moments I would realize that what wasn't right was that I was on the passenger side of the car <laughs> and not the driver's seat. And uh, my friends would probably see that as an example of how spacey I can be sometimes. But... That's, I'm reminded of that feeling this morning as I am standing up here in front of all of you as opposed to sitting, uh, excuse me, up here alone as opposed to sitting out there with all of you as I have for about the past 10 years of my life almost every Sunday. So I feel a little bit out of place, but Brian has, keeping with my illustration, entrusted me with the keys to the church car, so to speak, and I will do my best to cause minimal damage throughout our drive today. <laughs> So, some of you may be wondering, who is this guy? And my name is Ben Hansen. I am the intern with the youth ministry department here at Lakewood. Um, I work with the youth on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday nights, and as well as assisting Dave, our youth pastor, in planning events and curriculum, among many other various tasks. Um, The rest of my time is distributed into helping out with the chess club at Forestry Middle School, co-leading a small group of high school boys on Sunday nights, many of whom are sitting right here, um, meeting up with some of them on occasion, uh, maintaining a girlfriend. Is that the right way to say it? Maintain, surviving. <laughs> Endure, keeping a girlfriend not actively angry with me. And occasionally sleeping. I sometimes get to do that too. Um, I'm what most people would call a huge nerd. And I say that endearingly. Um, I love Star Wars and Doctor Who and Lord of the Rings. And I was even considering whether or not I should do my Gollum impression up here. But my small group implied that they would deny any kind of affiliation with me if I did. So I'll be leaving that out. All goofy stuff aside, one of the major things that I want you to know about me is that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, as are many of you in this room. But that process of being brought to the point where I was willing to surrender my life to Christ and follow him took quite a while. And there have been many men over the years who have come alongside me to encourage and guide me in that process. Some of these men came through programs here at church, cross trainers, pumped up, wired in LSM. I think of names of men who have been instrumental in directly feeding into me over time. Names like Mike Parrish, Mike Knapp, Ben Pontius, Ethan Nichols, John Nielsen, Dave Bostrom, and many others. They provided me with solid biblical teaching, encouragement, wise and patient counsel, firm correction, accountability, companionship, fun times, food, and so much more. And the more I've thought about it, the more I've realized that these men and what they did had a profound and eternal impact on my life. Without God placing these men who had a heart for youth and discipleship into my life, I know I would be far worse off than I am now. And I know definitely that I wouldn't be standing on this stage. So, through God, through recognizing this and studying God's instruction to us as believers, God has been putting this topic on my heart relentlessly for over a year now. And that's where I want to go with all of us this morning. I really want to take a look at what discipleship is and why all of us need to be doing it. But before we get into the actual disciple-making side of things, we first need to understand what being a disciple is. And simply put, 
Simply put, being a disciple is a follower of Jesus. Now, that needs some elaborating in our culture of um, Twitter and Facebook and paparazzi and so on. We don't really approach following with the same amount of dedication that the disciples and people of Jesus' time did. The end goal for a disciple back then was to dedicate everything they had and devote themselves to following their teacher, imitating their life, adopting their values, and reproducing their teachings. And Jesus seemed to raise the bar even higher than that. We can look at Luke 14, 26-27, which says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And then there's Matthew 16, 24, and 25. And that says, Then Jesus says to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And these passages can come across pretty strongly. But I think that's what Jesus intended. Whatever the exact implications for these passages are in all of our lives, Jesus was making it clear that discipleship would be more than merely observing, and it would have a cost. Francis Chan, former pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in California, uses a great example that involves parents and kids and messy rooms. There we go. So, parents, for a second, imagine that your kid has a messy room. It might be hard, but just try your hardest. And it might not be as bad as that one up there. But so, the kid's room is just a pit. And so, you say, all right, I need to run some errands. While I'm gone, clean up your room. And so, you're gone for a while doing your errands. But when you come back, you look in your kid's room, and nothing really has changed. All the stuff is still on the floor. Maybe some stuff has moved around a little bit, but no difference. So, you sit him down, and you say... I told you to clean your room. Why didn't you clean your room? And then they look at you and say, but mom slash dad, I, I sat in my room for a long time and I thought really hard about what it means to clean my room. And I posted on Facebook to all my friends and reminded them all to clean their rooms and how to do that. And I even invited a bunch of them to our house and we had a study about what it means to be cleaning our rooms and what that looks like. I can even say clean room in Greek and Hebrew. Aren't you impressed with me? And then you kind of look at them and you go, I don't know, I just wanted you to clean your room. You know, that's all I asked. And, you know, it's not that those things were bad things in themselves, but without the actual progress and the action of cleaning their room, all of those other things were essentially meaningless. It's almost as if those other things were done just as a way to get out of actually cleaning their room. Is it possible that that's how we act with God all the time or some of the time? Now, I need to be clear, I'm not trying to belittle the importance of small groups and meditating on God's word and scripture memorization. Scripture is clear that all of those are working parts in living out our faith. There's tons of scripture to support all of those things. I just grabbed a few here. For meeting together with other believers, there's Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, which says, And let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. For scripture memorization, there's 2 Timothy 3.16, which, by the way, is Paul writing to Timothy, which is one of the greatest examples of discipleship that's in the Bible. 
And he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And finally, for devoting personal time with the Lord, I picked Psalm 119.15, which says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. These are all incredibly important components of our faith, but they are not in and as of themselves the completion of it. And I think where the part of the problem lies is in our culture's emphasis on what I would call the education model. And please understand, I'm not trying to bash education. I think it's incredibly important. Wisdom is very important, and the verses that I just read would attest to that. But Western civilization, I think dating back all the way to the Renaissance, has slowly developed this idea, and it kind of equates education with salvation. And you hear it all the time in various forms, stuff like, if only we could educate everyone, poverty would disappear. If only we could educate everyone, crime would go away. If only we could educate everyone, never mind what it is that we're actually educating them, but if we could do it, we could cure the world of all ills, is the basic message that we hear. And there is some truth within that, but we know as Christians that only Christ can truly renew this world. And I think... A little bit of that mindset, though, has seeped into the church over time. Education is what we need to understand. Education, without application, is usually useless memorization. We need to learn, and then we need to obey. James would say that faith works the same way. In James 2, 14-17, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Well, that can seem pretty harsh, but it also seems pretty inescapably clear too. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. This is a verse that has kept me up at night sometimes. And I've done my homework for it. I've looked for loopholes, and there aren't really any. In this verse, faith is dead. Dead here is the word necros. And that's something that is lifeless or has breathed its last. But then, how do we reconcile that verse with a verse like Ephesians 2, 8 through 9? A verse that so many of us know and love, and so many even mentioned at the baptisms last week, where it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And not of yourself, this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Are Paul and James contradicting each other here? Is there a problem? Little disclaimer, this topic alone is something that you could probably spend five sermons on, and I don't have time to touch on it in depth. So any extra questions that you guys have, feel free to just ask Brian, and he'll totally answer all of them. But as for where I stand... I believe that there is no contradiction. How? I believe that Paul and James are talking about different kinds of works here. Paul, on one hand, is talking about the kinds of works done to try to attain salvation. I am doing this so that I might be saved. Whereas James is talking about works done as a result of salvation. I am doing this because I have been saved. And in that... um, With what Paul is saying, Paul is totally right because we can look at Isaiah 
And within Isaiah, it tells us that um, even our most righteous acts are like what is very nicely translated as filthy rags before the eyes of the Lord. We can never, ever hope to gain our salvation that way. We are not saved by our works. However, James also is totally right. If we have had an encounter with Christ, we will be changed. And I encourage you, after you go home, to take a look at Paul as he wrote Romans 6 and Colossians 3 and Galatians 5 and Ephesians 4 and see how really that really lines up with James. And they are both, they have the same heart and goal of teaching in a way that points back to Christ and what he did for us and the effect that that has on our lives, just approaching it in different ways. If there is an inflow of Christ into your life, there will be an overflow of Christ to the people around us. It happens in various degrees for all of us, since we all start at different points and we're transformed at different paces. But if you proclaim yourself a follower or disciple of Jesus, then you believe what he says is true, and you will strive to adopt and reproduce his teachings. And this can sound incredibly legalistic and robotic and like this list of things that you have to do, but it's not. What it's supposed to be is like a natural progression, like a fruit tree branch that, when healthily maintained, bears fruit. And in my own life, when I'm not seeing that fruit and I'm being convicted by fellow Christians in the Holy Spirit that something isn't right, then I need to take some time to seriously and deeply examine my heart for anything that could be getting in the way of that process of overflowing Christ, that bearing of fruit. And when I discover the problem, it's the process of admitting it, confessing it, repenting from it, and trusting in Jesus' sacrifice and God's grace to cleanse me of it. And that is the process of sanctification that we're all undergoing. But why do I say all this? Because Jesus was all about discipleship. Towards the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, one of the very first things that he did, it's actually, if you look, the very first thing that he did was he went and started preaching and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. very second thing that he did, we see in the verse that we just read in Matthew 4.19, he says, he's going up to Peter and Andrew as they fish in the boats, and he says, come and I will make you fishers of men. Or as I read that, I will make you disciplers. And then, towards the very end of Jesus' ministry, we have Matthew 28, 18-20. We all know it. And Jesus came, to, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I will be with you always to the end of the age. And when you look in between the rest of Jesus' ministry, there are tons of examples of his emphasis on discipleship. And I'm not going to have time to get into all of those right now. I'll touch on a couple of them later. But the overall point is that Jesus had a heart for making disciples. And that's one of the first things that I draw from that. He has a heart to reach the lost. As it says in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, where it says this, in context here, this is praying for all people and living a godly and dignified life, is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That's his desire. And therefore, through his transformative work in our lives and in our hearts, that becomes our desire as well. And second, making disciples is a command, not an option. I'm not sure if he can be more clear here. He's saying, go therefore and make disciples. There's no maybe go if you want to 
or if you feel like it, you can make just a couple disciples. What he's saying is, just do it. Some of you might be looking for a way out of this one, like I did. And I'll say, well, maybe that command was just intended for the disciples of that time, you know, when he was talking to them. But if we look at verse 20, he's commanding them to teach the disciples that they make to follow the same things that Jesus had commanded them to, which would include going and making disciples. There's really no way around it. So, in essence, being a disciple is engaging actively in the process of increasingly surrendering your life to Christ. That's what it boils down to. And given that, we can start to define disciple-making. And what does that look like? So, I was looking around to try and find some kind of example of discipleship that's relevant to what's recently been going on in our culture. And I eventually settled on a pretty good one, something that's some movies that have been coming out. Um, One was released just recently. And I warned you that I was a nerd. But um, within this Star Wars series, there's this relationship that we see between in the Jedi, the main characters of this movie, and there's the Jedi Master and the Jedi Apprentice. And in these movies, we see that relationship as the Jedi Master passes on that information to his apprentice over time until that apprentice is ready to take on another apprentice of their own. So, starting with the first movie, and when I say the first movie, I mean the one that came out in 1999. We have Jedi Master Qui-Gon Jinn and Apprentice Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon on the right and Obi-Wan on the left there. And throughout episode one, the first movie, we see this relationship between the two of them, some teaching that Qui-Gon is putting into Obi-Wan's life. But at this point, Obi-Wan is almost ready to take on one of his own apprentices. And that we see in the next movie as he takes on the young Anakin Skywalker. And throughout the nec- those next two movies, we see that relationship develop, and Anakin gets wiser and more knowledgeable in the ways of the Force. But unfortunately, in Episode 3, there's a slight um, doctrinal disagreement between the two of them, which causes them to go their own ways. But many years later, Obi-Wan ends up taking on the task of mentoring Anakin's son, Luke Skywalker. And that relationship takes on several forms throughout the series. But Luke grows wiser and more knowledgeable in the ways of the Force until the most recent movie that was released, in which certain stuff happens, but I'm not going to tell you because some of you might not have seen the movie and I don't want to spoil it for you. (laughs) Point being, I think that that type of relationship does a really good idea of illustrating that passing down of knowledge from one generation to the next, to the next, and to the next. And we see in 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, Paul is saying to Timothy, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Disciple-making defined is simply this. The process of helping others increasingly submit their entire life to the Lordship of Jesus. And while that might sound simple at first, a lot of questions start popping up really fast. Like, am I qualified to make disciples? Who should I disciple? Where do I start? What does it look like? And the first thing that I want to address is that it can be argued that discipleship occurs at various levels and in various forms. But what I'm going to be focusing on today is what I see as one of the most effective and universally applicable forms of discipleship, as evidenced by my own life and what I find in Scripture. And that is relational discipleship. There's a saying that goes like this. Nobody cares what you know until they know that you care. 
The process of coming alongside someone and experiencing life with them, building trust and love and respect, multiplies the potential to impactfully speak into their life exponentially. And this relational dynamic that I'm talking about is a lot harder to achieve in larger groups. So the context of what I'm going to be saying from here on out will be in, based in one-on-one or small group disciple-making. Jesus was a master disciple-maker, and he still only took on 12. So, discipling small groups of people or individually, sure, but who do we disciple? Should we not disciple certain people? The people that you look to to enter into a discipling relationship with are people who are less spiritually mature than you are, which usually means that they are younger than you, but not necessarily always. And that means that they would benefit from you taking them alongside you and learning from and with you. Notice I say, and with you. Do not approach a discipleship relationship in an arrogant or prideful spirit. It is destructive and counterproductive. Pride and arrogance focuses on and glorifies ourselves, but we are not making disciples of ourselves. We are making disciples of Jesus, and we aren't Jesus. Jesus was all-knowing, and I'm fairly sure that we don't have that going for us. I know I don't. It was Martin Luther who once put it this way, We are all mere beggars, showing other beggars where to find bread. On our own, we have nothing to give others. But we know someone who does, and we are trying to lead them to him. That being said, I don't think that someone needs to be a Christian for you to start discipling them. Why? I look at the disciples that Jesus had, and I ask this question. When did they become what we would consider to be Christians? I would argue that it definitely wasn't at the very beginning when he first took them on as his disciples. I would even say it wasn't until quite a while after, some of them until after his death, a lot of them until after his death and resurrection. The same, so for us, I think we just have to distinguish the difference between discipling to Christ for people who are not Christians yet in missions and outreach and discipling in Christ with ones who are already believers. That's why I think that discipleship is at the core of missions as well. Not as much short-term missions, which discipleship is a part of it, but more on the part of the person who's going on the missions trip than the people that you're outreaching to. And I don't mean to bash short-term missions at all. They're an incredibly important and incredibly useful tool. Um, But long-term missions are the opportunity that you have to really start fostering those discipleship relationships with the people that you're reaching out to. The only kind of people that I would caution you to avoid discipling in that way that I'm talking about is the opposite gender. It just creates too many potential pitfalls that in order to safely avoid them, you actually have to compromise a lot of the intimacy and therefore a lot of the effectiveness in disciple-making of the relationship. Someone might point out 2 Timothy 2.2, and they'll say, well, that tells us that we're supposed to entrust what we know to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So does that mean that we shouldn't pass on what we know to unreliable people who won't be qualified to teach others? And in response, I would say that we definitely want to be efficient with our time and reproduce faithful followers of Christ in a way that maximizes that reproduction. But I don't think that in doing so, we should ignore everyone else who we don't at the time see to be as the 
success, potential successes or the easy ones. In this passage, Paul's instructing Timothy, who is at this point a leader figure in the church. And when it comes to leadership, there's extra care involved with that process because there's higher standards of accountability and responsibility. But that was Timothy's spiritual gift of leadership. What about other spiritual gifts? And that's something to consider with your own spiritual gifts. What talents and convictions has God given you? In many ways, if you can find someone who shows potential and interest in those same areas, then that can really give more depth and direction to a discipleship relationship. For instance, with me, I had men who recognized in me the potential to teach, and they encouraged me to pursue that potential and grow in it. And it's still growing. But the same would go for anyone who has an incredible heart for serving, or gift of intellect, or promise in athletic ability. If you have those gifts yourself, then that will create another dimension of that relationship that you can use. And even if you don't, still look for those gifts in that person and those indications so that you can encourage them to grow those gifts and talents they have in such a way that signifies a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. But what would we do? How would it be done? One part of it is just to live life together, to share in your experiences with each other. With Jesus and his disciples, or Paul with Timothy and other examples throughout the Bible, there's a lot of unrecorded stuff. And that stuff was their travels together. There were a lot of meals that they ate and conversations that they had and miles that they walked that wasn't written down. And that stuff was the living life aspect. Not every single thing that you have to do with each other has to be a Bible study or something like that. You can go out to eat, you can play games, you can travel, watch movies, all kinds of stuff that will grow your relationship together. That being said, there needs to be an intentional effort within all of that relationship building that is directly pointed at growing closer to Christ. That intentionality separates a normal friendship from a discipleship relationship. There needs to be the intentionality and spiritual growth using all those things that we talked about earlier. Scripture memorization, meditation, and fellowship with other Christians. There needs to be intentionality in shaping and refining their spiritual gifts. And there needs to be intentionality and accountability. And I want to stop on that one because I think it's such a huge part. Having men in my life who are able to challenge me and gracefully guide me and help me in the struggles with the sins of my life was incredibly important to me. Knowing on Monday that, I was, that if I was struggling with the sin, that on Wednesday I was going to be held accountable for that sin and have to confess it and talk with another person about it was a huge tool that, was, that I was able to use. It was incredibly refreshing and encouraging to have people like that in my life. And parents, just as a side note for you, if, your chi- if you have a child that talks to you about everything, that's awesome. But the chances are they don't. And one of the best things that you can do for your child is to help set them up in a discipling relationship. Not only because we need those other mature adult examples speaking into our lives. I've heard it said once that each kid should have around five mentors speaking into them, giving them a variety of sources to encourage a healthy Christian walk. But sometimes it's just really hard for kids to talk to your parents about things. And with certain issues becoming so prevalent in our culture, for instance, what I would call the pornography epidemic, with kids being exposed to pornography average age now at 11 years old, 
having people to go to that you can trust and still feel comfortable enough to talk to is an incredible gift. And how much of a relief would it be as a parent to know that your kids have people to go to that are strong and loving followers of Christ who are capable of pointing them in the right direction? And Because if they're not going to you and they're not going to them, they're at the mercy of the world. Coming back from that and summarizing, what do you do? You live life with them. You be intentional with them in spiritual growth, exploring their spiritual gifts and accountability. Someone might say, though, I just don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I really have what it takes in order to disciple someone. But the response to that one is simple enough that I was able to put it right there in your note sheet. If you have a story about Jesus to tell and a relationship with Christ, then you are ready to go and make disciples. That's all that the first disciples had, and it was so much more than enough. And it's the same way for us. To conclude, I just want to give you guys a real-life example of discipleship at work. This is a picture of the small group that I was a part in throughout high school. It's the Holy Zealous Crusaders. Uh, Yep, that one. We have a a rich and vibrant history, but um, you can see me on the left and all these guys. Chris Bankers, Nick Bruski, Trevor Pontius, David Hughes, John Nielsen, our leader, Hunter Yelanimi, and Quinton Doles. Um, It started before, a while before I had joined, and Ben Pontius was the person who headed up that group and played a major role in speaking to the lives of the guys there. But at the time that I joined, um, John Nielsen was the leader of the group, and he was an incredibly valuable teacher to me and to all of us, especially in the way that all of his teaching and investment, he constantly pointed back and said, what I teach to you, you also teach to others. He had an emphasis on disciples who make disciples. And here's just another picture and an example of an investment that he made in us in taking all of us to Alaska a couple summers ago, which was a lot of fun. But as a result, there's this picture here, which is David Hughes and I with our Sunday night small group. This picture was taken a little while ago, but I like it for a couple of reasons. One, because it shows the characters of all the boys pretty well. We've got left to right, Mitchell Pontius, Max Walker, Nick Bruski, who's gone off to college, myself, David Hughes, John Nielsen, Jake Bankers, Gianna Gamello, Jerome Sandin, and Dexter Carmen. And one of my favorite parts about this picture is the fact that here we see two generations of disciple makers. John, who discipled David and I, and then David and I who turn around and discipled and are discipling these boys. And I hope that this picture shows three generations of disciple makers and that they too will be able to turn around and teach others what they have been told. If we want to talk about reaching the next generation with the good news of Jesus Christ, I can't think of a better way to do it. So let us go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, the one we're in, the community we're in, as well as others, so others may know of this joy and hope we have in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you for everything that you've done for us and that we do have this hope and this joy in you, this hope of a future. God, I pray that you would convict us and give us the motivation and just this this passion that we can't sit still and we can't keep this information to ourselves, this great news to ourselves, and that we would go and we would make disciples, engaging them in discipleship relationships, in loving them and helping them grow closer to you. 
helping them to surrender their life to you more and more. God, we love you, and may we do what you have commanded. In your name, amen.